we're on. So we want to come back to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12. And tonight we, uh, we're, we're going to try to get through verses 1 through 12. We'll see how we do. I don't see a clock within my view. So uh, is that one up there? 737? That's accurate, right? Okay. And so what time do you want to try to shut it down at 830 or something like that? That work with everybody? Just uh, I'll try to keep an eye on it. So let's read the first ver four verses together. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is man of sin, I'm sorry, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We'll we'll just take that's the first segment of the uh this section, we'll, take, we'll just stop there. We're just going to work through this. Now, one of the things that, that came out on uh, Tuesday night, and it's, it, it's unfortunate in some respects, but it's how, again, the Western mindset works sometimes. It invades things and causes us to distort the scriptures. You know, we're looking for time markers here. When it, what's the timing here? We want chronology, right? Well, you notice there's no chronology here. Paul purposely... This is, he's looking at it more as an overview from a topical point of view first in verses 1 through 4. And then in the middle section, in verses 5 through 8, I think it is, that he will, he'll talk about some time markers. And all the Westerners will say, hey, well, good, we finally got our time markers we, we so desperately need uh, to, to think through this portion. And then he'll come back in a third segment of the unit in verses 9 through 12 to again apply it from a topical standpoint, this time from the standpoint of, of uh, the purpose behind what's going on there. So there are certain things that are identified in these first four verses, and we've already looked at some of them, right? We looked at the fact that uh, the parousia, uh, the coming of our Lord in verse 1, we spent a lot of time on that on Tuesday night, so we won't do that, Our gathering together to him, uh, which we believe is the rapture of the church. Okay, I think we were able to defend that fairly well the other night. Gathering to him, not him to us. You notice that the wording is precise in the Bible. And where is he? On earth or in heaven? He's in heaven. So if we're being gathered to him, guess what? We're going to where he is. He's not coming to where we are. He'll come all the way to the earth at the end of the tribulation period, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about our Christians. Our means Christians because Paul's saying himself and the Thessalonian believers, our gathering to him, consistent with John 14, consistent with 1 Thessalonians 4, and all of 1 Corinthians 15, all the references, they're consistent. Okay? The Bible is consistent with itself. It's the mind of God. And, and then in verse 2, we spent some time there. I'll just, just mention it again. That apparently, even just a matter of a few weeks after Paul had left this assembly, this church, the devil was already sowing evil seed through a false teacher that 
was apparently, uh, he may have been in the region, may have been over in, in Palestine, near Jerusalem, for all we know, because he mentions letter as a possibility. And, and apparently Paul, uh, either he's being all-inclusive here, or he's not sure which of the means this false teacher is using. You know, he's claiming that he has this special spirit. That's the spirit. That's the first one, right? That uh, not either by spirit or by word. That would be really logos, the idea of a message that could be given through an individual, you know, uh, a fellow worker, or by letter, like this letter, like Thessalonians, a written letter. As if from us. That's the key phrase there, right? This is someone that's claiming to be writing for Paul. Now, does that surprise you that long before the end, even of the apostolic age, I mean, the apostles are still alive, and that God would permit someone to write a letter and put a false name and say that it's from Paul? That's a pretty big level of deception. And God permitted that. Why? Why would God permit such a thing? Say it again. That's exactly it, brother. I thought that's what you said. I just want to make sure I heard you. That's exactly it. Two words. To test. To test the faith of the Christians. And, and we could add to that really to prove it. Because when God tests our faith, it's not to tear it down. It's not because he wonders whether we have it, but to build it up, to strengthen it, to prove it so that we get encouraged, so that we get more confident in our faith, right? And he still does that. You know, when, when we have challenges to our doctrinal statement or challenges to what we believe in the Bible, those should strengthen our faith. And if we're solid in the, in the faith, if we're not solid, we could get sidetracked for a while and hopefully... One of the brothers or sisters would come alongside and bring us back, right? And we need to be, have that kind of pastoral spirit and be sensitive to doing that. And then we came to that last phrase that we spent a lot of time on, as though the day of Christ had come. And I believe day of Christ is the right translation there, and that it works. You don't need to interpolate it and change it or whatever. The day of Christ fits, and we spent a lot of time with that already, especially even last night. So let no one deceive you by any means. What's the key verb there? Deceive. And it will, it'll come again later in this section, won't he? You talk about the lie, deception. So deception is out there. He's, he's stressing that, right? Characteristic of the church age. One of the characteristics of the church age is that God allows deceptions to go on for a time. I think he usually has a time limit on them, but he knows what that is and we don't. And they probably, in my view, they last too long. <laughs> but, uh, but God knows what he's doing, right? So let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, the apostasy. And I pointed you to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. 
has to be the apostasy he's talking about there. He also There will be a couple of verses in 2 Timothy 4 as well. The itching ears. You remember in, in the middle of that little first little unit around verse 4 and 5 of uh, 2 Timothy 4. That would link to that same thing, the apostasy. And we're in it. I mean, J. Vernon McGee said before he died in 1988, he was saying in 1986, we are in it. If we were in it in 86, we're sure in it in 2013. And there's abundant evidence, and we don't need to go spend time on that. If you're not sure of that, we can talk about that on the side. But the evidence is overwhelming. We are in it. We don't know how long it's going to last, though. But the apostasy, sure, an indication. If, 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 if Israel being back in the land and having a nuclear bomb and being a threat to the world wasn't enough to convince you we were in the the last era of the, the last days of the church age, the apostasy certainly should. And, and we, are, we are doing that. And it's happening by the week now, in droves. And that's why I emphasized last night, from a pastoral standpoint, you know, watch your young people. We older ones, we pretty well got grounded in the truth before the apostasy came so we were a little more guarded we were a little more ready for it but they 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 born into it and and uh and they are being overwhelmed with information that's why we call it the information age it's part of the technology you can't reverse technology none of you probably wish that you had a horse and buggy to come over here tonight instead of your car because technology is not reversible. Once you've had the car, the horse and buggy gets parked, doesn't it? Unless you're up in a certain part of Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so the same is true with, with the computers and the Internet and all of that. It's not going away. And the Antichrist, we can easily see how it's going to be an enormous tool for the Antichrist. I mean, we used to study Revelation chapter 11 and the two witnesses being dead on the street of Jerusalem for three days, you know, before they're raptured. There's another rapture that occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. And, but it's not the mid-trib rapture of the church. It's the two witnesses. And, and we wondered, you know, I mean, I believe the Bible because the Lord said it would, all the whole world would see it and have a big Christmas party celebrating, handing out presents to each other. But didn't know quite how it was going. But now I know how it's going to happen. They're going to have their iPhones. <laughs> and, and you go over to Africa. And you go over to the Middle East. Or different uh, parts of Asia that are very poor. And, and they've, they've got their iPhones. They're standing on the corner with their iPhones. They may be living in a grass hut. But they have iPhones and they have an antenna. A dish. Uh, to pick up the uh, Western movies, you know, the, that they like to watch. I'm told they like Western movies in Central Africa. I don't know if that's true. The cowboy movies, I mean, you know, John Wayne. And so that's, that's, what that's the era we find ourselves in. And so I would say that the falling away coming first has happened. And the man of sin who's the Antichrist. He's also called the lawless one in this section and the son of perdition. It's interesting, the Lord has different descriptions of him and you notice he's called the man of sin but the son of perdition. He's a man of sin in that sin is what characterizes him and rules him. But he's the son, he's the offspring of perdition. Perdition means everlasting destruction. Interesting way to characterize an individual, isn't it? 
No one like him ever on the planet before. There have been people that have been close to being like him. And I believe, I, I don't know if, if the elders would agree with this, but I believe, since I believe in the imminent return of the Lord, I believe the Lord could have come in Paul's day. Paul seems to believe he, it, that the Lord could have returned in his day. He could have come in Timothy's day, which would be the second generation of the church. He could have come in the next generation. I think the Lord could have come in any generation of the church that he wanted to. And therefore, there, Satan had his man ready in every generation too. And we can pretty well guess in the 1930s who he was. Not too hard to figure out, that out. But you can even go back further back in history and there are individuals that, that fit the description very well. And I don't know if you could get one for every generation or not, but I think you could come pretty close. So, but this man of sin is going to be unveiled, revealed. And of course, we, we got stuck on that Tuesday night. Well, when? When's he going to be revealed? Why is, it this, why is it right after the apostate? Well, he's going to get to that in verses 5 through 8. Beloved, just be patient. You know, that, that's what consecutive reading helps us to do. We, we don't proof text. Very dangerous thing to proof text. You know what I mean by proof texting? Taking one verse, pulling it out of its context, and develop a whole theology out of that. All the cults do that. All the false teachers do that. And the false theologies do that. And it's, it's mishandling the scriptures like we talked about last night, 2 Timothy 2.15. We don't want to do that because it's a dishonor and disrespect to our Lord and his word. You wouldn't do that with your newspaper. You'd read an article. You would never do that with an article in the newspaper. And I know you wouldn't do it with a legal document, especially if it was a legal document saying that you were about to inherit a million or so dollars. You, you would make sure it was all intact. You wouldn't pull, pull statements out. But people do it with the Bible all the time. And this is the Word of God. You see what I'm saying? Let's have a little respect here. So, what he's doing in these first four verses is telling us the extent to which error is going to go, first of all, in the church age, leading up to the rapture, right? That's the apostasy that comes first. But then, even in the tribulation period, the extent to which evil is going to go in the seven-year tribulation period. Because what he goes on to describe in verse 4 does not happen at the signing of the peace treaty at the beginning of the seven years. We know that from the text of the scripture. And, and it really doesn't even happen fully at the midpoint. It really gets developed from the midpoint on and grows all the way to the end of the seven-year period. So you see what he's doing? He's taking a long-range look at the church age and saying it's going to end in apostasy... And he's taking a long-range view of the day of the Lord, the first part of it, the uh, tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, and it's going to go toward where eventually a man is going to claim to be God incarnate. See? Which is the ultimate act of sin. That's what Lucifer did in Ezekiel 28 and caused him to be put out of his place as one of the anointed cherubs. Right? 
That's what humanity is working towards in secular humanism. The whole idea behind secular humanism, which has totally taken over our education system, our education system, especially at the university level, totally taken over to this. And evolution, the evolutionary hypothesis is all part of it. The evolutionary hypothesis talks about creation without God and elevates man to some extent, even though the, you know, man is growth out of some sort of ape creature and so forth. But there is this idea that man's progressing, see? And this is the ultimate progression. He's going to eventually be like God. And the Antichrist is going to be the fulfillment of that, and, the, and humankind is going to love that. We finally got to what, we're, what evolution's goal has been, see? But secular humanism says that, that man is sufficient to handle himself and this planet by himself. He doesn't need the Christians, he doesn't need the Bible, he doesn't need Jesus Christ, and he doesn't need God. And that's our world today, isn't it? The whole world is defined. You know, climate change. We can control the climate. You know, it's not God's judgments that's causing... Oh, no, not by any means. No, it, it's, it's our fault. It's our pollution that's causing it. So, therefore, we've got to change how we put out our emissions of this, our emissions of that, and so forth. Everything's looked at, as Solomon would say it, life under the sun in Ecclesiastes, right? Which means whole definition of creation and our existence apart from God. Which is a pretty sad, solemn, and staggering thing that the creature would do that with regard to the Creator. To, the, to such an extent that before I was saved in high school and in, and in university, I went through all years of university as an unbeliever, I was totally convinced that we didn't need God. That's what I was trained to believe by the Jesuits in high school and then by my training in engineering in university and that we could define our world and control it and ultimately reach utopia without God. How about you? And you may still think you can in the back of your mind because your flesh is full of deceitfulness and evil thoughts, right? According to Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? So he says, this man of sin, this son of perdition, one of the ways he's going to reveal himself is that, verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Not only that, he opposes and exalts himself above, by the way, you talk about self-exaltation. What does God think about self-exaltation? Anybody remember how James 4.8 goes? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, what is God's attitude towards self-exaltation? Opposing is a strong word, is it? You get the idea that he doesn't like it? But here's a guy that, that's going to oppose anything that contests with the fact that he might be called God or worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Which is exactly 
what we see in Revelation chapter 13. Perfectly consistent with Revelation 13. Revelation 13 divides into two parts dealing with two different characters, right? The Antichrist and the false prophet. And they're described, and it's perfectly consistent with this. Now, one of the things, did you notice here in verse 4, the temple of God? Now, that may not have been too much of a problem for the Thessalonian believers because the temple was still standing when Paul wrote this letter. But there hadn't been any temple of God since 70 A.D. There's no temple of God on the earth now, apart from the church, of course. I'm talking about the building, the physical building, temple, which is what he's talking about here. I don't think this is metaphorical language for the church. But some, you know, millennial theology would say that. Now, this is a literal temple. And if you compare Revelation chapter 11, 1 and 2, and Daniel chapter 9, and Matthew 24, where the Lord himself validates Daniel's prophecy and quotes the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, well, where does the abomination of desolation occur in Daniel 9? In the temple. <laughs> so there has to be a temple. There isn't a temple now. So guess what? There's going to be a temple. <laughs> you get the logical deduction there. There's going to be a temple built. And someone says, well, when's it going to be built? It's not built now, so it must not going to be happening. Well, it, it could be built before the rapture. It could be built after the rapture. These days, it, we, you could erect it if, you, if they choose to do a tent, which uh, there are some implications of the Old Testament. It might be a tent. I think that's in Amos. That, uh, how long does it take to erect a tent? Half a day? But, it, but they could build a building in a week if they wanted to. They planned it out right. I was in construction, so I'm not just speaking out of the air. Um, and it's interesting, you realize, some of you may not realize, that I was in Israel in 2000, and of course the Intifada that Arafat started up began in September of that year. I was there in May. And the Intifada that basically has continued until they, Ariel Sharon finally built the, uh, the wall, and that's when a lot of the, the bombings in the, in the city stopped, right? When they built the, the wall around the Palestinian territory. But it, it's interesting to think about it. They, they had a crane and they had the cornerstone of the temple ready to put on the Temple Mount in 2000. The Temple Treasures Institute and those that agree with wanting to do that, which I was told was only 1 or 2% of the Jewish population in the land of Israel. Now it's a very small percentage. But, but they were ready. They had the crane ready, and the government said, no, no, we're not ready to start World War III yet. Can you imagine what the Muslim world would think to see the foundation stone of the temple laid? Is that something we need to get? Because everybody's listening to the... Uh, to the beat instead of to the... So, that is something that's within the realm of possibility. It's something that's been discussed. As I've been told, I haven't seen everything, but I've been told by the Temple Treasures Institute that they have, they have all the articles for the priestly garments have been made. All the utensils have been made for the priesthood. 
uh, everything for the Holy of Holies and the holy place had been made except at that time in 2000, the menorah, the candlestick had not been completed. And they had a mock-up of it there in Jerusalem then and it's probably been completed by now and they were looking for the ashes of the red heifer. But some of the rabbis are saying now that they don't need the ashes of the red heifer to start sacrifices again, animal sacrifices. By the way, that is probably part of the peace treaty that Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 9. The peace treaty is going to be something to uh, probably keep the escalation of some sort of a nuclear conflict from going, going on. And, and it makes, many believe that, that Israel will have to drop a nuclear bomb on one of its enemies. And, and when that happens, that will cause, the, believe me, that will cause the world to want a peace treaty with Israel. Because the big thing the world's concerned about is escalation, right? The world knows that somebody's going to shoot one of those bombs. The key is they don't want it to escalate so that this one retaliates to this one, and this one comes back again, and this one comes back again, and pretty soon the whole planet's radioactive, right? So that's what probably will cause the signing of the peace treaty. But one of the things that apparently Israel is going to put in there, and this will be their leader, which could be the false prophet, of, of Revelation 13, that they're going to want to restart animal sacrifices. Well, you know, there are certain animal rights groups in this country that would be very upset about that. But they're going to get overruled because they're going to be something more important, world peace. So it's got to be something very significant that's going to cause that peace treaty. All part of God's plan. He predicted it in Daniel's day. Now, in thinking about this, I'm call, I think of him as the super exalter. And by the way, in the church, God hates self-exaltation. Let's make sure that we check that in ourselves and, and in other brethren. I, I mean, there's too much of it already. And, uh, and even in, in our circles, it, it's way overboard. And uh, I think we really need to be careful about that. It's a bad testimony to the lost people. So... We see here the super exalter. And I want to go back to uh, the book of Daniel in chapter 8, first of all. Two different little portions in the book of Daniel. You know, right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go to Daniel 8, 23, and then Daniel eleven thirty six. You say, well, why two places? Because they're talking about two individuals who are characterized by the same thing. But you'll notice in Daniel chapter 8 that he's called the willful king, right? The willful king is out of which empire? Anybody remember? The third, the Greco-Macedonian Empire. So this person has already lived. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he fulfilled this already. So let's read that uh, beginning of verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. This would be a precursor to the man of sin that we were just reading about in 2 Thessalonians. He has fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, which means it's satanic. He shall destroy fearfully, shall prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. All of this literally occurred. 
from 167 to 164 B.C. Just a little over 100 years before Christ came. Through his cunning. So what's he characterized by? He's characterized by fierceness. He's characterized by sinister schemes. Right? He's characterized by might. A power, but not from himself, from some other agency, which would be satanic. He destroys fearfully. He prospers and thrives. He destroys the mighty. God's people, in other words. And through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Can you imagine? Here's going to be a ruler that rewards people who are deceivers. We can see some parallels even in our day. I won't go any further than that since we're on tape. But we, there's some definite parallels even in our day. We, we can begin to relate to this a little bit. But this one's going to take it to the ultimate. And of course, Antiochus did. Uh, so he shall cause deceit to prosper, and he shall do what in his heart? Exalt himself. See? He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, which is very likely the, uh, the high priest of Israel, but he shall be broken without human means. In other words, God will destroy him. God will intervene and destroy him. Okay? So then you turn over a few pages to chapter 11 in verse 36 of Daniel, and we see another one who has very similar descriptions to this one, but he's different. Because this one in Daniel 11 now, and you're having to take my word for it, I know, because I'm just jumping in here. But this one's out of the fourth empire. In chapter 8, it was out of the third empire, the Greco-Macedonian, and Antiochus Epiphanes was, right? He was out of that empire. Now, this one's out of the fourth empire, which would be the revived Roman empire that Daniel saw in, in the vision in chapter 7. So then the king, verse 36, shall do according to his own will. He shall do what? Exalt and magnify himself. That's almost word for word what Paul just said, isn't it? Second Thessalonians 2. Exalt and magnify himself above every god. So this, this man is not going to be satisfied with atheistic pantheism, which is what the government leaders of our land and most of the Europe and most of the world believe in, an atheistic pantheism. Pantheism means that there are gods in all kinds of things, right? Hinduism uh, probably elevated that to the ultimate degree. And, and we've uh, taken a lot of, uh, we being American society, have, have, have learned a lot from the, the Hindus and incorporated it into the New Age movement and these other things. And it's a pantheistic religion. Multiple gods, right? So we see then that he shall exalt, magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, the true God, and shall prosper till the wrath that has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. For why? He shall exalt himself above them all. That's what we just read in 2 Thessalonians 2, didn't we? He's going to sit in the temple, claim to be God. In other words, apparently, he's going to go right into the Holy of Holies. Now, according to some of the books of Maccabees, you know, the Maccabees lived during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they opposed him. 
that the Maccabean revolt is what finally ended his domination of the priesthood and the temple. And they, the Maccabees went in there and cleansed it. Of course, they established their own priesthood, which wasn't Levitical and therefore wasn't biblical. But anyway, they did stop Antiochus Epiphanes eventually. Well, God ultimately, but God used the Maccabean revolt. And so that's all documented history in the books of the Maccabees. But uh, Antiochus, I think, also went into the Holy of Holies himself, and God let him. He didn't, you know, Nadab and Abihu couldn't go in there without dying, right? But Antiochus was able to do it because God, again, was, John's, what was he doing? What's the word you said earlier? Testing. <laughs> So, he shall exalt himself above them all, but in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, that is, military, militarism, and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, and so he shall act against the strongest of fortresses, and so forth. Okay, you get the idea. Anybody have any doubts that what Paul's talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2 was predicted in Daniel? Right? Okay, and of course, it's, it's also established in the, uh, in the book of Revelation. All right, so let's go down to verse 5 then. So Paul, after he has made that kind of, he, he takes a general view of the extent to which the evil will go first, right? Steps back, takes a general view, and now he comes back in verse 5, and he touches base with what he had been teaching them when he was with them. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? We're in 2 Thessalonians 2 again, verse 5. I told you these things. So, again, this not to, I don't think it can be overemphasized. <laughs> Paul believed this was important. He believed that the return of the Lord is core curriculum, not optional, not third tier doctrine, not even second tier first here and and we need to regard it that way so what's the difference remember the question we had what's the difference what who cares well God cares and godly people care that's the answer disciples of Christ care because Christ cares God cares right so Paul says when I was still with you I told you these things he was only with them a few weeks and we spent a year and a half in Corinth. You say, well, in, in a year and a half, he could get to third-tier doctrines, right? And he spent three years in Ephesus. Well, for sure, there, he could get to third-tier. But in a few weeks, see? You see why I'm arguing that and why I'm emphasizing that? And it's unfortunate. It's unbelievable we live in that kind of a day that that would even come up even in the assemblies, but it has. And it's certainly come up in the megachurches. The third-tier idea... Joe uh, Ducanis was telling me about it. Some friends of his, lawyer friends of his that, that go to Coral Ridge Presbyterian. Travidian is, is putting out that third tier idea about certain doctrines you don't want to get into because it upsets the people. But he's not the only one. He didn't invent that, I'm sure. Verse 6. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. <laughs> so the Thessalonians knew. Do you know? Does anyone here know what's restraining? So that 
the son of perdition may be, and there's that word again, revealed in his own time. So now he's moving into when the son of perdition might be revealed. He hasn't dealt with the when question in verses 1 through 4. Everybody convinced of that? Everybody see that? Verses 1 through 4, the when question doesn't come up. Now we're moving into it. And, he, and he's not revealed yet, and he hasn't been revealed yet in our day. Why? Because there is something or someone who's restraining. So, who is it? Or, what is it? The Spirit of God is one answer that some believe. The church is one answer, although it would seem if it was either of those, he would be, wouldn't he be pretty particular about it and say that if that was the case? He certainly isn't evasive about the Spirit of God or the church anywhere else. But here he's being purposefully evasive about the identity, isn't he? Well, some believe that it, it could be that God's order under civil governments, you know, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, remember the civil governments have been established by God, ministers of God, to do what? Restrain evil. Thank you. <laughs> Reward good, punish evil. According to Romans 13, that's what the governments have been set up for by God. And we are in an age currently where God is using those governments to bring order in our world and to allow for the promulgation of the gospel. Right? So many believe that Paul may be being purposefully evasive here because remember the charge that was made against him and Jason and the others that they tried to arrest was that they were, they were teaching insurrection against Caesar. Remember in Acts 17? I looked at that on Sunday, I think. And it could, you can make a good case for that. But that doesn't say that the two answers that, that you all give would be, would be wrong either because the Holy Spirit is... The one who ultimately, I mean, God's the only one that can really restrain evil when it comes down to it, right? Has the power to do that. But the governments are, have been put in a position to, to do that to some extent, according to Romans 13. Put in that position by God. And the idea is for the building of the church. So that's what John was saying, and that's true too. And there's that statement in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 11, you know, that in verse 25, that to me is, you know, you, we can almost skip over it and forget it, but in verse 25, uh, that I want you to, do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that uh, of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in to the church which would be consistent with what you were saying, right, John? So all of that, I think, are components of the same thing. God, in other words, Matthew 16, 18, Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He's still building his church, and because he's still building his church, there are certain restraints God has put 
upon the man of sin being revealed in his own time. Which kind of tells us that Satan's anxious to reveal this man of sin, isn't he? Which is consistent with what I was saying about the imminent return of Christ and therefore Satan having a man ready in every generation from Paul's day all the way to the present. And however far into the future it needs to go. You with me? So, let's follow along the argument. Back to 2 Thess 2, verse 6. So now you know what is restraining, that he, the son of perdition, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, lawlessness isn't necessarily anarchy, right? Because in Paul's day, you could hardly say that anarchy characterized the Roman Empire in that day. Even under Nero, there was a tremendous amount of order. And evil was punished quickly, and even Christians were punished quickly. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a massive infrastructure. That's what was the key to the Roman Empire and has been the key to the American dominance in the world today is infrastructure, why we're as strong as we are. It's very, you know, with, with, a, with a pyramid infrastructure, with all these checks and balances, you pull out a piece here, you pull out a piece there, and it still stands, right? The Romans figured that out better than any of the nations before them. And we just inherited it from them. Our, our former government is very similar to the Roman Republican form of government. So the mystery of lawlessness is the idea of lawlessness, meaning opposition to God. Opposition to God's law and laws, creatorial laws, natural laws, but especially His Word. So the mystery of lawlessness here, I think, is best thought of or interpreted to be opposition to the gospel and opposition to the word of God. And it was at work. All you got to do is go back and see in the book of Acts, right? Everywhere Paul went, he was opposed. And he says the mystery of lawlessness, and you know, we, we know what mystery means in the Bible, right? Mystery isn't a whodunit kind of a thing or, or some sort of secret thing that, that no one can figure out. A mystery is a truth that was always in God's mind from eternity past, but has never been revealed before here. It was always a truth, but we didn't know it until it was revealed. So Paul is helping us to understand one of the great mysteries here in the New Testament, the mystery of lawlessness, and it's already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Of course, in my New King James Bible, the interpreters have already decided, they put a capital H with he, so they think that Roger's right, that it's the Holy Spirit that's restraining. They've already made a decision there, and they may be right. It's not a, it's not a point that really, in one sense, it, it, it's not that important that the restrainer be identified. The key is that the restraint is happening. You with me? Whatever God's using, and God's the ultimate controller of it, whether it's His Spirit or whether it's the governmental civil orders or 
something he's doing with the presence of the church and the existence of the church, right? So he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And of course, if, if it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's never taken out of the way in the sense of taken out of the earth. You know, I've heard sometimes some brethren say that and, you know, and they're going to quickly get, get mocked for saying that because everybody knows that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. <laughs> He's God, right? And one of the characteristics of God is omnipresence. So it would be his, this particular work of his in building the church that would be taken out of the way, which is consistent with the pre-tribulation rapture, consistent with everything we've said so far up to this point in First and Second Thessalonians, right? That would be taken out of the way. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Now you've got an answer to your when question. You just had to wait till we got to verse 8, right? And it's the same word revealed as was used up in verse 3, as was used here in verse 6, and now in verse 8. So then the lawless one will be revealed. So what's the then referring to? The preceding verse, which is whatever is restraining, whether it be a person or a principle or both, that restraint is taken out of the way and leave, we could say, a vacuum for the lawless one to fill. Okay? Now, there are some aspects to the governmental side of this in Revelation 13, especially Revelation 17 and 18, right? That gives us a little more detail here. He's going to use that ten-nation confederacy that the world will be then ruled by and and you know, according to the Council of Foreign Relations, the, the nations of the earth have been divided into ten zones or regions for 25 years. You probably didn't know that, since none of you sit on the council. <laughs> and I wouldn't know that, except I've read a book by someone who used to sit on the council. And it seems reliable, what he's saying, but he, he divided all the continents, I mean, Australia, New Zealand, everybody, they've, they've divided it up. They, they know who the regions are. And they all communicate with each other. And all of this is part of what, how world control is happening. At that level. Aren't you glad God is in control? Because we're sure not. We have no concept of what's going on out there. None. So the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. Well, is the Lord going to consume him with the breath of his mouth on day two? of the tribulation period? Is he going to do it at the midpoint? When's he going to do that? At the end, at the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19, right? So again, Paul's looking at the big picture, right? He's not going into all the little details of saying, well, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. He's not been led by the Holy Spirit to do that with these Thessalonian letters. The Holy Spirit would use John in the Revelation and Peter to some extent in his writings to do that. But he has chosen not to do that. So we don't need to read in, you know, I said Jesus. We don't need to do that to try to uh, work this out. Paul is saying that the lawless one will be revealed. That's the beginning 
of the 70th week. And then Christ is going to destroy him, and that's the end. That's the bracket of the whole week right there in one verse. And destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And, and Paul purposely mentions his coming, his parousia, there in verse 8. By the way, did you pick up on that? That's why I said in my little diagram on Tuesday night, the parousia, does, it includes the rapture, but not just the rapture, because what did Paul just say here? The brightness of his parousia, and he's, that's going to happen when he destroys the man of sin, and that's going to be when? At the end of the 70th week. So the parousia begins before the 70th week, at the rapture, goes right through the 70th week of Daniel, and then can, includes the return of Christ to the earth. So the parousia is not just a point in time, one thing, it's a process. Right? Because in the book of Revelation, we find in the throne room scene in chapter 4 and 5, when the Lamb takes the scroll from the throne sitter, which is God the Father, I believe, and takes the scroll and begins to undo the seals in beginning in chapter 6, and that continues all the way through chapter 19, what's he doing? He's taking dominion of the earth back. And he's the only one who is the, the, the uh, one who is able, as John says, when he weeps, who's able to take the scroll and take the title deed back that Satan usurped from Adam way back in Genesis 3. Well, here's the one to do it. So that's consistent with this idea of process too, right? That, it's, that he's beginning to take dominion, but he still hasn't come to the earth yet, physically. Okay? There's another reason why Paul happens to mention parousia at the end of verse 8, and that's to set up verse 9, because there are two parousias, as I mentioned, I think, last night in this section. In verse 9, the parousia of the lawless one. So the lawless one, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, these different names for him, his coming is a process too, isn't it? Because his coming begins with the signing of the peace treaty with Israel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. But he continues to exercise dominion from that point all the way to Revelation 19, to the Battle of Armageddon, doesn't he, for seven years. And especially in the last three and a half years where he claims to be God as well as king on earth. Okay? So you see then that the Holy Spirit has just told us that our interpretation of parousia to include a process is consistent with verse 9 because we know the lawless one is not going to just reign for one day. Now if you say, well, the parousia must just be the rapture, right? Well, that's going to happen in twinkling of an eye one day, right? But that's not all that, that is called the parousia. It includes that. But the lawless one, he's not just going to reign for the day he signs the peace treaty, right? The Bible's very clear that in the book of Daniel and in Revelation and in Zechariah that he's going to reign for seven years. And that Christ is going to begin to exercise wrath against Israel and the nations, Israel in disobedience, the unbelieving Israel, right? And the nations 
right from the beginning of the 70th week. By the way, the white horse rider, the first seal in Revelation 6, would be the signing of the peace treaty, would be consistent. White horse, peace. He's going to claim to be the one to bring world peace, but it's not going to last long because the second horse is anarchy, right? The red horse. He's been to take peace from the earth. So it'll last for a brief period of time and then anarchy will ensue. That's just how it's always been with the nations, right? And then, uh, and we're near the end of our time here, so I'll just uh, stop with, with uh, verse 9, okay, since we started into it. So the parousia, or the coming of the lawless one, is according to the working or the energy of who? No doubt about it. Everybody knows who Satan is, right? He's given all three of his names in Revelation chapter 12, isn't he? But here, here, here he is, the energizing of Satan, and that energy of Satan will manifest itself how? With all power, signs, lying wonders. So that's probably where I guess I was wondering where the Lord would have me pick up for Sunday morning, so I guess that's where we'll go. But just to conclude tonight, of course, one of the things we see in Revelation 13 is that the false prophet is going to see to it that the world, the earth dwellers, are going to build a statue to honor, this would be like Nebuchadnezzar's statue in, in Daniel 3, right? brought all the musicians out and the satraps and the governors and they sang in the plain of Dura. Well, they're going to build, I don't know if it'll be 90 foot tall like that one. That's, that's pretty tall. And then the false prophet is going to enable that statue to talk. Now, is that a pretty impressive lying wonder? In a culture, even the culture we're in today, that's looking for miracles to validate who's authentic and who isn't, aren't they? Isn't that all around us? You've got to see a miracle. I mean, the, the Signs and Wonders movement in the Vineyard Church, which goes back to the mid-1980s, of course, with John Wimber and uh, Jackie Deere and that group, they taught back then, it's not so strong now, although the Vineyard Church, there's some down here, I think I've seen some. Uh, they're still around. They taught that unless you see signs and wonders in your church, you're not a true church and you're not really saved. Well, that fits right in with what Satan's doing here. Lying wonders, signs, power. That's what the world's looking for. And God's going to give it to them for a time. Sobering, isn't it? But hopefully it helps us, each one of us who are genuinely born-again Christians, to realize, number one, what a privilege it is to know the truth and to know the living God and to be in relationship with Him, which protects us from all this error that's out that, that He's talking about here, protects us from this evil one. But second of all, that we would have a compassionate burden, increasing compassionate burden for the lost that don't know this truth yet. And the day is far spent.
beloved, the night is coming when no man can work. The night the Lord is referring to there in John 12 is the tribulation period. You will not be able to work freely with the gospel then, I can assure you. Antichrist will see to that. So let's avail ourselves of the opportunities that he gives us, just as we're doing, and rejoice in the fact that Christ has redeemed us, delivered us, rescued us from the coming wrath. Amen? So, Brother John, if you'd like to close in prayer or ask someone to close in prayer, we thank you for your, your kindness in having us in your, your lovely home here, Brother. Appreciate it.